Hello everyone, my name is Frederick Gieschen and today I'm talking with Rob Bertheimer. Rob is one of the authors of the book Lessons from the Titans, which is a collection of case studies of great industrial companies, everything from GE to Transdime, Danaher, Caterpillar. It's a book I really enjoyed and I love that I got the opportunity to dig more into the topic of, of research, culture, and leadership, business systems, incentives, and all of that with, with Rob. Before we begin, just a disclaimer, none of this is investment advice. We're not your fiduciaries. This is just our opinion. Always do your own research. Don't, don't buy or sell anything based on uh, what I'm talking about here. Without further ado, please, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rob. All right, Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate that you're taking the time on a Friday afternoon. And before getting into the conversation, I'd like to set the table a little bit. Just tell me a little bit about Melius. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly and how the book came out. Thanks for having us. So Melius is an independent research firm or financial firm, I suppose, where a few of us who have worked together on Wall Street for a long time decided to get together and start a, you know, an independent research shop. And it's funny, the book is a part of that in that, you know, one of the justifiable, can, you know, restrictions on your activity when you're working at Morgan Stanley or Barclays, where some of this have worked, is, you know, you're representing the whole bank, so they don't, they don't always allow you total freedom in what you want to do. And we started this to have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of freedom in what we can say, what we can write, et cetera. And so we've learned a lot over the past few decades of doing research, and this was a chance to sort of explore it, really. Yeah, no, I, I tremendously enjoyed it. I, I thought there were so many lessons. Sometimes the lessons were very clear. Sometimes the, the story was maybe obvious in retrospect, but I wonder if I could have detected the signs at the moment. And I want to just start off, you, you say in the in the book that the reasons for failure and the formulas for success haven't really changed and that the secrets are hardly secrets at all. So I'm curious, where do you sort of see the overarching theme, right? What what If you had to summarize it, what what's your takeaway from from this endeavor? Yeah, for sure. I, and it is a takeaway of, of, of decades of, of talking and listening to senior managers, etc. I think the theme is that it's cultural and execution based, right? So, you know, we, we talk about how culture isn't just, you know, getting up on a podium and making a speech. It doesn't come from the CEO down necessarily. It comes from the day-to-day -day actions that people do. And if you think about what really drives success, I think there are organizations in this world who kind of drift along, you know, somewhat aimlessly or, or with less rigor. And if you can have a culture and a management system that drives daily activities, you know, then people are fulfilled, they work better, they work more effectively. And so, you know, to me, I think the lesson is a culture that drives execution above all else. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about culture and maybe assessing culture from as, as an outsider, right? Are there, and I'm thinking, for example, there, there seem to be pretty, there are diff, pretty different examples of culture in the book, right? Danaher has this immersion program and, and tries to really get people into their culture. So, so maybe pick out a couple of examples and how you approach this when you, when you look at a new company or when you're trying to figure out whether this company is, is, you know, quote unquote, good at culture and what that means. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question. It's an important one. It's not always easy. I mean, if, if you look across the industrial space where, where we live, let's say, you can find any number of presentations where, you know, this is, you know, this is our culture, or this is our strategy. These are the building blocks of our strategy. And, and some of them are similar, you know, probably, you know, through different ideas that, float around the consulting verse of the, the management verse. And so I think the biggest differentiator is it does it drive your daily actions? You know, are you, you know, in a culture that, you know, that, that, that really structures how work flows and how news flows and how actions flow. And so, you know, Dan or her or a company I follow now who's not in the book, Ingersoll Rand, you know, they'll do weekly meetings where, you know, it's, it, it's a dead simple process. You have a weekly meetings, you have like 20 minutes, you get two minutes to state your problem. A minute to sort of you know ask for feedback you move on you move on right and so that's an example of a daily or a weekly feedback loop that comes around and i think the best cultures have that sort of process ingrained in them as opposed to just saying hey here's our goals for the year and you know everybody go kind of go after it if you see what I mean. here's our quarterly budget let's see what we do so the way to find it out is really to talk not necessarily just to the c-level people but just to talk to you know people who work at the place are you motivated you know are you measured on what you do do you, do you know what you're supposed to be doing you know is it easy to know what you do and just simple questions like that can have some really profound different answers i think how, how important is leadership or sort of tone at the top versus what you described seems a little bit 
But if there's this bottom-up component of understanding, is everybody in the in the organization aligned? Do they do they know what the culture is or what their what the values are? How important is sort of the the CEO kind of the the top to that? Well, I actually do think the CEO is a you know incredibly critical. You know, sometimes CEOs get in the line for you know making too much money or for 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 whatever. But the C-suite can have massive impacts. So for one, on strategy, which maybe is a little bit separate from this question, but you make either good allocations of capital or, or poor ones, and obviously that drives a, a ton of shareholder value differentiation. But there's all need for sustained commitment to a system. So again, you can see lots of management teams that have sort of laid out goals, but if you don't get everybody motivated and incentivized the right way, then they can fade away. And so if you are in, in the in the top seat, I mean, one of the things you're trying to do is get people rowing in the same direction. That means just a lot of blocking and tackling, as they say, on setting compensation systems. So you have a goal. Is your compensation system wrapped around that or not? You know, are your daily management meetings, your monthly management meetings, are they wrapped around the goal or not? And so you could argue some of that's a COO's role or whatever, but I think leadership from the top is critical to give people the freedom to sort of commit to the system, I guess. And I'm curious, you follow some of these companies, as you mentioned, for for decades, right? And maybe some of them stand out in terms of culture, but there's also examples like GE, right, which is sort of the the cornerstone of the book and has the spectacular rise in a, in a very performance-driven culture that in the beginning seems to work. And then it kind of unravels. And as you point out in the book, it's sort of, I mean, still the same company. A lot of the systems that are in place are still the same. So how do you, what are you paying attention to over time to, to see whether culture is changing or whether I think this this term culture where the arrogance is is creeping up. So arrogance is a, is a huge red flag, and it's one of the ones we think you know we think about. These are great questions, and we sort of sit and think about them ourselves. And how do we tell you know what is a good culture? What a company is succeeding? What company is likely to succeed in the future? Because. Sometimes you can spend a couple of years or even longer building something that doesn't pay off immediately, but it's meaningful. So we talk in the book, and I will get to the question, but we talk in the book about lean manufacturing, and we can get into that you know, in any level of depth if you want. But lean is, you know, it's, a, it's a continuous improvement system. It's about reducing waste. It's about doing lots of things, but it might not take one year to, 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 to put in, right? It, you know, it takes you know, your entire organization getting all their actions firmed up in the same direction. So you know, to your earlier question, you know, what does a CEO do? You, you commit to it and you push on it the whole time. And so arrogance can be a big flag. I mean, if you're a CEO, if you're a corporate leader, you know, a decent part of your job is capital allocation. A decent part of your job is looking at some pretty big and grandiose ideas on who to acquire or what to do. Or gosh, I mean, if you're sitting there in the CCU today, you've got a lot of things to think about on connected devices, internet of things, you know, technology shifts, you know, disruption. There's lots of, you know, big ideas that you need to tackle and CEOs need to find time to think about and tackle. However, you know, the, the value gets created, you know, every day throughout. And so, you know, if, if, you, if you have a culture that's spending too much time on big ideas and not enough time on generating the cash that, you know, that allows you the flexibility to do things. You know, if you have a culture that's, as GE sometimes veered into being a little bit, PowerPoint focus is probably an insulting term, but, you know, if, if it's projecting yourself internally focused as opposed to executing on the daily task uh, focused, that can be a real red flag. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering, because industrials is such a broad umbrella, and we'll definitely get to lean management, I think that's, that's something I, I saw that term over and over. And I was like, I got to learn more about this. But before there's, there's companies in here, right from sort of a caterpillar to to aerospace companies. So it's, it's a fairly broad umbrella, and, and they have different strategies. And I'm always wondering, how specific is a successful culture to, you know, to the specific business model or, or market, right? Is it feasible for some of these companies to say, okay, I'm going to pick out a best of breed culture and, and some role models and adopt that? Have you seen examples of, of things that are kind of universal that people can adopt? Or is it very specific to the company's history, the leadership, what they do? How much, how much room is there for bringing in ideas from the outside? I think there are absolutely commonalities that are just critical. And again, to your question, you know, what is what is a successful culture? I think bad news needs to flow up. You know, all of us make mistakes in life, right? Everybody does. Or maybe something's, you know, not quite a mistake, but it's not, you know, clicking along. And it, there's a couple points to that. Again, some of that's leadership. So you want to make sure, and it's not easy. I mean, nobody likes receiving bad news either, right? But you want to make sure that you're a culture that rewards servicing issues quickly because... 
issues are inevitable, right? So the faster you surface them, you know that they are, the faster you surface them, the faster you fix them. And that's a little bit of a lean idea in many ways. And so I think good cultures will have a, not just a, a, not just a goal of surfacing bad news, but a mechanism, you know? So if you're doing a weekly meeting, how are you doing? You know, what do you need help on? That's not a adversarial necessarily conversation, but it might be all things are terrible. You know, I need, I need to, I need help, you know? And so if you have a structure in which you're, you're, you're surfacing that, then you can go a lot further. So I think that's a huge thing to have that feedback loop where things can be addressed and fixed. And that's probably universal. And you're right. We do talk about, you know, Boeing. I mean, you're making multi-billion dollar bets on an airplane where best case you lose money on the first few, you know, a hundred copies or whatever the airplane, then you get better over time. And so there's absolutely some, some wildly different sub-strategies that you need to use. No, but I think that having clear goals, having reinforcement loops, and having uh, the ability to course correct is universal. You know, one of the points we try to make in the book, Boeing's maybe not the best example, but a lot of these companies have been innovative, and a lot of companies have created categories or created some, some things. But if you ask me, I'm a Caterpillar analyst, you know, you know, how do you analyze Caterpillar? Well, I don't look at who has the best bulldozer, you know, and, and they do, you know, but, but they might not have the best everything. And so the competitive advantage doesn't always last on innovation, but it does last on getting everything fixed, everything right, everything, you know, sort of moving along, let's say, and reinvesting in the right thing. That's interesting because the Caterpillar chapter was so in, instructive and there, there was this this anecdote about the factory floor and like whether or not employees would halt production when there's an issue or whether inventory is piling up. And there's this other, other quote that I love where um, you guys said, undisciplined operations don't work. And so I'm curious if this is still in the culture bucket or if this moves over to lean and operational excellence. But tell me about what you've learned, just sort of assessing whether companies are disciplined, good at the kind of execution. Un unpack all of this for me for somebody who's never been inside a factory. On yeah, a factory it's, it's a little bit the same question. Lean is a culture. You know, lean is, you know, lean, you know, and it, it might be viewed narrowly or broadly, but it is a culture. So that, that chapter I wrote it is is as much a critique of me as it is of cat because I was prone to this sort of grandiose, oh my gosh, I think mining demand is going to go up forever and you know I think it's going to go whatever. And and the reality is you have to try to do as much as you can to be as flexible as you can to reduce the volatility that comes with business cycles. And so what happened at CAD is we had in the early 2000s just a lot of up cycles happening at once, a lot of demand growing. And I don't know how closely you follow, but China, you know, on the world scene, all of a sudden, you know, burst into growth and starts driving lots of end markets to a, to a height that you haven't seen before. And so, you know, so, so China goes from, you know, a moderate economy, let's say, to using half the world's copper or cement or iron ore in a period of 10 years. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And so you're a manager of Caterpillar, you're trying to manage that, and people are ordering through the roof. you got a housing bubble at the same time. There's lots going on. And that's where lean comes in. And Cat did not at that time have a, a fully developed lean culture or lean system. And so what does that mean? So let's just, it's a, it's a pretty tangible example. If you ask almost any fa any corporate leader in manufacturing, hey, what do you look for when you go in a factory? Well, it's not actually all that hard. You walk into the factory, you see if the sight lines are clear. If there's a bunch of inventory stacked up and piled up, you know, that's something wrong. That's waste. That's that's confusion. That's uh, you know disruption. You look to see that there's an employee sort of idea board and that there's lots of ideas flowing through because workers are the ones who see problems and they surface them, right? So that's a mechanism for surfacing problems. You look to see that it's clean. That you know that you know that it's um, you know it's easy to see. I think one anecdote I didn't I didn't get in there, but I went to a mining facility once and they had these little discs that were used for smoothing or buffing the, the metal, and they just did a simple thing a shadow board. It's called you paint on a you know on a cardboard wall like here's a picture of the disc. So when you're done with it, you stack it here. They found like seven of these things. You know they found like a million dollars of you know of equipment. There's a picture of the broom there too. You know hang the broom up right. So very very simple things. But what went wrong at CAT is, and there's a lot to a lean system, but you're trying to jam more stuff through. You get it halfway down the line and your shipment of hydraulic hoses for a particular connector didn't come. And so you keep building it and then you don't stop the whole line and you keep building it and you move it off to the side and you say, we'll put that in later. And that just turns out to be incredibly expensive, you know? So instead of stopping and fixing the root cause of the problem, we need to fix this process so we have each of these components ready when it's in the line. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you send it down the line, maybe somebody who's not really trained for that puts it on and you test it and it doesn't work. Now, Cat's a great company, so they didn't let equipment go out broken, but it's very costly to fix things in a non-standard way. So if you've got a person, you know, pulling the dozer off the line, testing it, it doesn't work, then you got people diagnosing it, that, that's a mess. So 
the essence of lean is stop and fix, get things right, surface problems, and that's a factory floor issue. But as we kind of talked about earlier, that applies to the whole company as well. So if you if you see a problem, you can fix it. If you don't see it, then it, it grows. There's so much here to, to get into, but I wanted to stop for one second. So you're the analyst, right? You're touring the factory floor. You're seeing this happening. And I'm just curious how you weight this, right? You're going back, you're writing the report, and there's there's all the macro happening. There's the valuation, the competitors, maybe they have their own faults. And you see this happening. How do you, how does this sort of mosaic of, of things that you pick up flow into your assessment of the company? How important is it? It's critical. And honestly, I missed it, right? So I was a pretty new analyst at Caterpillar when I saw some of these issues. I launched on Cat Note 7. I think I saw three or four factories in the first year, the first 18 months. And one of these visits I read about in the book, I walked down and there's there's bins, just bins of things labeled rework. I was like, what's rework? Well, it didn't come out right the first time, so we're going to do it again, you know? And I was like, all right, you know, and there's, there was actually a first aid booth. It was covered, you could get into it, but it was like covered by these bins. And you know what I did? I kept writing about the end markets because that's what I understood at that time, right? I kept writing about, oh, I think mining is going to be good or bad or, you know, and, and so I thought about it. I was like, oh, well, this doesn't feel great, but I haven't seen that many factories and probably they'll fix it. And in fact, that was a that was a terrible sign. You know, in the end, you know, Caterpillar was was struggling with production, not with equipment quality. The equipment's still great, but they weren't able to crank up production. So during that period, Cat's margins were going down while its volumes went up, and that's just dead opposite. So that was actually a huge problem, a huge cultural problem, huge you know business system problem. And Cat's managers and leaders fixed it. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes lean takes a while. So if you've got a workforce who isn't used to it, it might take you five years to get the new system in. You can't fix it in a quarter, in other words. And so it was a huge thing. And I didn't I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. So so that's that was going to be my next question, right? What you described about lean and sort of this continuous learning process and integrating sort of employee suggestions and just making the factory better um, all the time. To me, I'm like, yeah, this sounds great. Why doesn't everybody do this? And in the I think maybe Danaher is like an example of where this worked very well and where they initially, I love the story, how they picked it up from the, uh, the consultants that they, that they met. I'm like, but why wouldn't, why doesn't everybody do this? And, and how, how important or how impactful do you think it is when it's sort of fully integrated in an organization? Like, tell me about, tell me about where this turns into an advantage or a long edge. You know, why is Toyota still a leader, you know, you know, after 20 or 30 years, if you look at the defect rate at Ford, it's gone down dramatically. I mean, Ford cars are way better than they would have been in the seventies or or whenever. And Toyota has gone down by even more. Right. And so one answer to your question is continuous improvement is a compounding process, right? So if, and Danaher is maybe the ultimate example of that, but you fix something, it gets better. And then you fix something else and it gets better and you keep going. Right. And what happens then? Well, your cash flow goes up, your margins go up, and then you you can redeploy the cash. So it seems obvious, but it's not easy and it's not going to pay off in the first quarter. So let's say you're a manager at Caterpillar and there's people screaming for equipment and you're actually losing market share at that time to Komatsu because Komatsu had a pretty good system. Well, you know, is the right thing to stop and fix, you know, stop the production line and fix everything and then keep going or, or, or what? So to your first question, it takes a very serious commitment from senior management and it takes years, you know, maybe it takes five years to get everything kind of, you know, where everybody knows that, that their first job is to stop and fix. Their first job is to reduce, you know, inefficiency, that sort of a thing. It can be tempting to say, well, let's just buy a few hundred extra hoses and just have them there, you know, and then you're like, well, okay, but now you got extra and it's it's all chaos. And something something that I really liked about the book is these these very tangible examples, right? And a lot of them come from from you guys touring, like you said, the factory floor, the offices. For example, for, for Danaher, I was struck by the example of like they're using a lot of visuals are they using colors for like specific workflows or when they make acquisitions they have these these war rooms and these boards that sort of visually show and, and you just mentioned the brooms and the, you know there's there's all of these are there are those sort of universal tactics are there things that you've observed that really some people just do better and others have not caught up on or like how do you think about these things that that pop out that that really make a company unique or better you know part of what you're saying is it's critically important it's not it's not rocket science, right? But it is hard to do. So like, you know, a board that shows you where to hang them up is not very, you know, you know, hard, but you, you hang it in the right place every time you save five minutes a day or something or 10 or 15 or whatever you do. Your floor is cleaner so you don't have accidents, which is industrial companies care a lot about. And Danaher is maybe, maybe again, it's an amazing company that perhaps has flown under the radar of the general investing public, but it's, you know, they would call this stuff common sense, but they really do it. I mean, they apply it, you know, with vigor. And so 
Anyway, I think I think the answer is these cues are important just to take my business or, or yours. I mean, let's say I have, you know, I'm supposed to you know think of ideas on stocks and talk to 100 people on. So I don't do this. I probably should have a color coded wall. Have I talked to this person or not? You just take a post it and you move it from one spot to the other. I haven't talked to this person in a while. The post it's hanging over there. Oh, I know that. I know that person. I should call them. Very easy stuff. But in our day to day, it can be hard to stop and focus on process if you see the mean while you're trying to do what you think you have busy work next thing to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And I, I'm struck sometimes you have these situations where the analysts or wall street in general sort of think they understand the, the, the business better than the executives and sort of come up with, you know, all these suggestions or why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And maybe the executive is like, maybe they just don't understand all the tactical and strategic challenges. So I'm, I'm curious how you think about that, your understanding of, of companies and, and how, how this works today versus when you started like is that is there a disconnect between the people who analyze the company and think it's all you know easy to just like just do all these things like it's so straight or is there sometimes a, a point to to being the outside observer i expect if you ask that of a supply chain manager over the last you know years or two years they probably have steam coming out their ears right because like oh your margins are down you couldn't get stuff and it's like well there's covid you know there's issues and before that there was tariffs so so the, the Vicente Rinaldo, the CEO of Ingersoll Rand said, you know, it's it's like a duck, you know, it looks smooth on the surface and you're paddling 100 miles an hour underneath. So I think anybody who does this job for long enough, you know, grows to have real respect for the amount of effort that gets put in, you know, and it's absolutely, you know, huge. And supply chain to be a perfect example, you're trying to deal with 100 different problems that are unpredictable. You know, you can predict a steady production line, but all of a sudden, you know, a factory goes down because China shuts down a city and then what do you do? You know, it, it becomes hard. And maybe that's actually an illustration of some of the problems with lean. If lean is reducing waste, if lean is reducing those extra hoses because you just order them at the right time, well, when the factory gets closed for unexpected reasons, that can be a problem. So no, I think, you know, my job is a tricky one. You have to be arrogant enough to have an opinion, you know, which which is something to start with and humble enough to, let's know you're probably wrong most of the time, you know, close to half the time, even if you're great, right? So hopefully we we do get that it's it's tough. It's it's tough to manage through some of these things. Yeah. And I guess I just want to, I'm curious if you've changed your your perspective then, because you make the point, right, and in, in, especially with Caterpillar, because the end markets were so volatile and you had several big cycles and you're basically... I think in the book you said that management team wasn't great at predicting these, but we weren't either. Like nobody could really get all of these right. And that there was a general, I got the issue that there was a general issue with forecasting these complex systems, like just like the stock market is you can't really get it right all the time. Does that, how does that affect what you emphasize in your, in your research? And do, do you just go more bottom up? Do you look more at kind of the company's quality or like how, what, what, what do you, what do you make of it if it's so hard to, to forecast that? It does. It, it's a little bit seductive trying to outguess everyone. And that's part of my job to say where we think earnings are wrong and therefore where the stock may outperform or underperform as a result. And some of that is forecasting. And, and honestly, I think a lot of people in this job like thinking about things, right? So you get, you know, you get a lot of data points and you like to think about it. And some of the cultural stuff is harder to think about. But no, we've, we've very deliberately moved in that direction. So at Melius, we use two-year forward price targets. Everybody has a price target. You try to do one year ahead. We try to do two, partly as a mental trick to try and get yourself to focus, partly because these things show up more over time, right? If you're trying to forecast a quarter, okay, you can say, well, what was, you know, what was demand of iPhone shipped this quarter or something? But if you're trying to focus on how Apple created value over the last 10 years. I mean, it's innovation and supply chain, you know? So those two things, you know, they, they switch in relative performance as your time frame goes out longer, right? So the longer your time frame, the more the importance of the management the system and philosophy becomes. Got it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about incentives then, right? Because I think there were really interesting examples on maybe both both ends of the spectrum in the book, right? There's maybe a United Technologies where, where sort of the wrong incentives over a long enough period sort of drive the organization in the wrong direction. There's maybe also companies like Transdime where, if I remember it correctly, sort of very focused and maybe very high financial rewards can can really turbocharge having having this great idea and just like taking it to the next level. Like, what have you observed in terms of what people do well or poorly with with incentivizing the organization? There's a couple of questions in there, and one of them's a fascinating one on CEO turnover. You know, in, in the United Technologies, it'd be one. So sometimes the right playbook changes over time, right? So if you have all your incentives structured around raising margin, that might be a phenomenal thing if you're underperforming, if your margins are low, you know, and then, you know, you you tell people, all right, let's get margins up, let's work on pricing, let's work on factory efficiency, and, and et cetera. Eventually that playbook may come to an end. And if you're a person who's grown up in that system, 
let's get margins up, let's get margins up, let's get margins up, and you step into a leadership role, it's hard to say, well, it's hard to say to Wall Street, it's hard to say to all the analysts, you know what, hey, we're just going to stop all that, you know, and we're going to do something else entirely, right? Because investors invest on a certain expectation of future earnings and anything that changes the risk of that future earnings, you know, changes the potential valuation. So CEO changeovers are a fascinating thing. You just sort of have to sit and think, are are we doing the right things? Are is our strategy set, you know, with our incentives? And I'll give you an example that's in the book that's not in the book that you know you mentioned like what what did we leave on the cutting floor? So John Deere is a company I follow. I don't know if you saw them, but they've been in the news for autonomous tractors. They have all sorts of technology that they're doing. And under the current CEO, John May, they basically shifted their strategy, I think with the endorsement of the prior CEO, Sam Allen as well. But they had tried to be a global manufacturer who was leading in all sizes of tractors. And they started to look around. They said, well, the technology is changing so fast that we can actually create more value by focusing on large. We're going to try and serve all our customers. We're going to focus on investing in large farms where we can do autonomous tractors or we can do, you know, actually they're, they're doing uh, AI pattern recognition. So you can go down a row and say, this is a weed, this is a plant, let's use weed killer in the weed and not on the plant. We'll save fertilizer, we'll help the environment. So they completely changed the strategy. And that was because at a moment in time, technology and market position, et cetera, intersected to, to make that the right decision. So I'm going a little bit afield from your question, but incentives matter because you have to tie them to the strategy and the strategy either, you know, if you're Danaher and you say the new CEO is going to blow everything up, it's like, well, it's working great. So why would you do that? But if you come to the end of a particular strategy, you change. And then, sorry, should I? So, and then just another example, and you mentioned Transdime where people can, you know, you can drive a massive change and massive margins and even good products. Or one company I follow, United Rentals, where incentives was a huge portion of the transformation. So they had different branch managers. Let's say, let's say you're a local McDonald's and you're incentivized on beating out the McDonald's down the road. That's kind of crazy, right? And so, you know, one of the things that one of the very simple but powerful changes made at United Rentals under a new CEO was let's shift the compensation to focus on regional or district results rather than on your own. And that's a capital intensive industry. So let's charge people for the capital. You know, if you want to buy 10 more pieces of equipment to rent, you know, that that's part of your compensation. You have to make a return on that where bizarrely it had not necessarily been that way before. So I think, I think we wrote in the book, Charlie Munger, I think has been quoted as saying, you know, in all my life, I've been in the top 10% of the people who recognize, you know, compensation and I've always underestimated it. And I, I think that that flows through, you know, if you have the right incentives, the right strategy tied together, then you're going to do wonderful things. And if your incentives don't tie, then people will do the wrong thing. Yeah. It's, an, it's a really interesting example because I, my, my perception is a little bit that it's easy to look t towards the incentives for the C-suite to like, oh, okay, they're. They're being compensated on EPS or, or growth, top line growth or cash flow. Like what's the right. But what you just described was sort of tracking how the incentives work through the organization, right? Like through the through the different layers is is are there other examples or like is that something you always look at or does United Rentals kind of stand out as, as like that, a that was a dramatic one because it changed the whole shape of an industry in some ways. And it was dead simple. You know, it was, it was very obvious. I agree. I mean, we do proxy reviews. We look at all the proxies. We look at what are you paid for? And sometimes your mind kind of blurs because, it, you know, in the end, there's like 10 different metrics and they all have some incorporation of something. I think when you, you know, when you get down to it, senior leaders probably are compensated on EPS growth or ROIC, but that's not going to help a factory floor person because they can't control the EPS. They might need to be compensated on safety at the factory and on, you know, on productivity at the factory. And so we do ask those questions. They're important ones. And I would suggest that, you know, in the industrial world, at least, you know, it starts with safety and quality, you know, if you're not, which is something that can be pervasive throughout the organization. And so you have the right strategy, the right direction, and then incentives tweak, you know, here and there, but they should be aligned to the overall goal, I guess. And this metric, the, the metrics, I think is another interesting one. I think it was maybe Danaher where there was this, this moment where they tracked basically everything and the new CFO came in and said, you know what, this is this is not helping us. This is too much. We're going to narrow it down. And they have this very focused set of, of things that they truly track and focus on. How how do you think about that across organizations in, in other instances where you're thinking like oh, these guys are looking at the at the at the wrong wrong metrics or like how is that even obvious from outside the organization? I don't know that that is obvious from the outside. And you're correct on Dana Hearn and Roper is a chapter in the book and they do the same thing, a very simple sort of cash return on cash invested kind of a thing with, with some other tools. What you're describing though is it's 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 
underlying its simplicity again, right? You know, if you have hundreds of metrics, it's hard to track them. It's hard to know what you're supposed to be doing. And you have only so much time in a day and you also, your, your attention gets fragmented and scattered, right? And so I think, you know, what Danaher is again, better than almost anybody in the world at is like, you know, is focus on driving change and the things you're trying to drive change in, not necessarily in everything in the world. And so I bring that all back to simplicity and things you can measure and things you can affect change on. Yeah. And I guess you mentioned the CEO, the sort of the, the changeover. And I think a lot of the a lot of the stories in the book or, or the, the case studies sort of tie back to a company, sort of whether it's a turnaround or they're, they're pivoting, there's a new person coming in and you sort of have to make an assessment. Are they going to be able to make certain changes in the organization, maybe change culture? And in some cases, I think in, in the case of Honeywell, right, there was a lot of skepticism on the street. Like, is this CEO good enough? Did they get the right talent? And, and sort of a lot of it comes down to assessing this person and how they interact with the organization. So tell me, tell me about what you've learned about that and assessing these people early in there. You know, my, my, my colleague and co-author Scott Davis wrote that chapter on Honeywell and he's known Honeywell for a long time and known Dave Cody for a long time, the former CEO. Immense success achieved, and Dave Cody wrote a, a, a great book too. You know, I don't. I think part of the point of that chapter is you wouldn't necessarily look at Dave Cody and say this is this is you know definitely when he's early in his career, definitely the person we know is going to fix everything. And some of the things he did were, were not again they're not overly complex. It's focus and it's you know it's cost cutting and it's you know why are we hiring a bunch of people every time somebody starts? You let know, you know let, let's not hire people. Let's figure out what needs to be done and cut out tasks that don't need to be done and you know not necessarily make everybody work harder but focus on what you need and so it, it is fascinating how how long would it take you to, to understand that that particular leader is is the right one and a huge winner and i think scott davis was a supporter of the honeywell transformation in the beginning and many people weren't you know and so that created a lot of value hopefully for for clients because you know we gave good advice based on a good judgment. Making that judgment is hard. I mean, that's one of the great things about being in this industry is you get a chance to meet a lot of different management teams and you're probably wrong about many, but you at least have a basis on which to sort of judge. And again, many of your questions are the right ones. It's, you know, how do you judge? It's not necessarily what they throw up in the presentation. It's like, you know, when you go to the factory, does this sound like what's happening? You know, if you ask somebody on the factory floor, like, what do you, you know, what do you ask to do? You know, is the answer one that fits with the strategy? Yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering because there's sort of there seem to be these these different views on if if you have a lot of access to management, right? If you go to the conferences, if as an analyst you get access to them one on one, you'll be in a better spot to to assess this person early and maybe pick up some some clues. And and I think there are there are ample examples of this of this in the book where where it's like, well, I noticed this thing and like it kind of threw me off that Immelt had an advanced team and that that was really odd. And those, but there's also the 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 downside of being very close to somebody who was very good at getting into that seat and is great at telling a story, great at selling you, and in general, probably very polished. So I'm curious how you weigh the trade-off of having that access and seeing that, but then the risk of getting drawn into their narrative of the company. That's a great question. I'm not sure there's a clean answer. It's our job to evaluate things dispassionately, right? Our job can be do, done better if we have relationships and you, you're allowed to talk to people and relationships build, you know, conflicts mental or otherwise, right? So it's a great question. And one of the things we've changed over the last three or four years as we sort of founded Melius and started is when I launch on a new company, you know, as opposed to, again, as opposed to spending so much time in the end markets, what your forecast, gosh, I think it's a total waste of a CEO's time to sit there and say, what do you think the next quarter will be? You know, what, you know, it's on, you know, what are your goals? You know, what are you trying to drive? You know, how are you trying to do this? And so the more tangible that your answers are, and you can, you can ask some of our CEOs that question, they go, bang, 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 here it is. And, you know, and it's, it's dead easy. So I think one answer to your question is we've tried very consciously to evolve our work to ask more questions like that and fewer questions like where do you think the industrial pulp market will be in four years? If you see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And and something else that stuck out to me is sort of the role of these big decisions. You, you've touched on it, right? As a as a leader, you, there's the culture work, the process, and there's capital allocation. And you get the flywheel going. What do you do with with the cash? And M and A. To, to me, in, in the book, it's all over the place, right? You have 
people who are very focused and have, whether it's a transdime or roper, they, they kind of zone in on, on one strategy, do that. There's examples like Caterpillar. There's also GE, where early in the in sort of the, the rise under, under Wells, there were some brilliant deals, and later it all falls apart, and it's one step, misstep after another. So I'm curious how you think about M&A as a kind of the assessing whether they're, they're good at it. When, when you see a deal being announced, what do you look for? Like, how do you unpack these these massive decisions and, and whether the company's good at it or, or whether you should be skeptical? You're absolutely right. And the, the, the industrial space, a ton of value has been created and destroyed in M&A. Maybe that's writ large across the entire market, right? It's sometimes hard to know when looking at an individual deal, whether it's going to be great or not, because they'll always have a, a reason for it. I mean, people are smart and they think of it and they, you know, they have good reasons and a good presentation or whatever. What we're trying to say in the book is, you know, some of these things enable capital you know, allocation. So if you've actually got your process right, you got your margins up, your cash flow goes up, hopefully your inventories go down, you're lean, your investments go down, you just start pouring out cash flow and you can start making acquisitions. The ones that have gone wrong, and I write about a couple of them, you know, and, and it, again, in a self-critical way, I thought the mining market would do X and it did Y. So if you're basing an acquisition off of that, that can be very challenging. Versus if you're saying, hey, you know, I took the margins from 7% to 21% because of these processes and this company doesn't have this culture or process and we can improve them, then you're making more of a bet on your internal you know, capability. So at least in our world, the, the, a lot of value has been created by the quote unquote compounders like Roper, like Danaher, like Transdime. And they're able to use that to make relatively small bets that play to their strengths. And they all have different strengths, let's say, but they all have a systematic way of approaching that strength or consistent way of approaching that strength versus, you know, a lot of value destroyed, you know, and Caterpillar trying to buy a mining company, Bucyrus, that, you know, the mining forecast didn't, didn't pan out. Anyway, capital allocation is huge. If you look at Dave Cody again at Honeywell, I believe he mentions in his book that, you know, one of his jobs was try and create enough space for him to just sit and read and think for hours a day, you know, or hours a week, you know, or a day a week, or, you know, just finding time. Because being a CEO is a massively difficult job. And you, again, you have to think about all these conflicting pressures and do it. And uh, anyway, the more, the more strength your organization delivers, the more flexibility you have in those decisions. That's, that's, Talk about the the compounders because I think that's sort of at least in the the people that that I know that I, I think that there's obviously these these massively successful examples right and somebody finds a playbook and they find an industry and they find a certain type of deal and maybe and it's mispriced or the or the market doesn't understand the the inherent pricing power and there's sort of these these levers you can pull and I think in the case of Transdime there was an example where a copycat came up and like another management team tried to do it and Transdime they 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 just bought these guys out and i'm curious to me it always seems like this is a very specific example of somebody identifying a a market segment or a specific market where they can where they can do that and i always wonder right like when are they going to tap out or like could this be replicated somewhere else or you know can i apply these lessons somewhere else like how do you think about these compounders and and is it are these just isolated examples that work well? Can you how how feasible is it to find more of them? You know, every tell me everything you know about compounders, basically. It, it's amazing. I mean, for the audience, so a compounder, as we refer to industrial, is a company that does the things we're talking about. They get their margins flowing, their cash flow going. They have often a fairly um, diverse set of businesses, and they find it uh, relatively easy to find new opportunities where they buy them and they they run the same playbook again. So you buy a company, the margins are ten percent. You bring them up to twenty. All of a sudden, that's generating cash. And as you do that more and more, your base gets bigger and you can compound at an ever accelerating rate. It's exponential growth, you know, and exponential growth is maybe slow at first and then very, very powerful over time. It's funny. I mean, if you were to, again, none of it is rocket science. None of it is secret. And yet there are a large number of successful compounders out there. It's Danaher, which has moved into healthcare. So they sort of took their skill set into new markets. So I think it's worked very well. Uh, there's Roper, which kind of took its skill set in the software and worked very well. Niche software, let's say Transdime and Aerospace, you know, and aftermarket and all sorts of things work very well. I cover a few in Amatech and IDEX, which do, I don't know, niche industrial applications. Ingersoll Rand, I think is going to be a wonderful compounder over time that has a, a great system. So it's huge value creation and it's steady and it's repeatable, let's say. So you're basically creating growth through inorganic activity versus, you know, kind of what I've talked about as a fallacy of trying to predict what market will be great in 10 years. You're actually making diversified bets and you're making bets on your ability to improve things as much as you are on on end markets. All that matters a lot, to be fair. 
And gosh, it's, it's an incredible value creator. And I'm not sure how to say it any more, any more than that. The reason it works is partly because not everybody gets it. Doing a culture right is hard. And, you know, doing lean, you know, it's hard. Why is Caterpillar starting lean in 2005 when Toyota started in 1970? And it was obvious it was working in 1985, you know. So you take 20, 20 more years to kind of get there, right? Because it's hard. You know, you don't have, you know. And so one answer to this is there are still a lot of small companies, a lot of private companies, a lot of, you know, even bigger companies that have maybe been successful because their end markets were great, or maybe because their innovation was great, or maybe they had certain strengths. And that's part of the idea of the book. You know, what happens after innovation matures, you know, fades, it's culture execution and, and some of these things we've been talking about. So the answer is there's there's amazingly fruitful avenues for capital deployment because not everybody has gotten these lessons. And the lessons sound simple, but they're not easy to execute always consistently. Which, which kind of begs the question, right? Let's say somebody presents to you as the analyst and is saying, okay, I have this company and it's been doing X, Y, and Z in the past. And by the way, I get it. I get the playbook or the, the concept of, of what you just described. I'm going to do it with this company and here's my plan, but you haven't seen them execute on it, right? Yet, right? You, you, you'll maybe see them the, do the first couple of deals and people ask you, well, is this for real? Do you think they'll get it right? Is Do you think there are kind of tangible signs that you can sort of yardsticks where you're like, yes, this guy actually, or this woman actually has a real playbook or they're just kind of imitating someone? Because I think, I do think there's this sort of copycat danger, whether it's the company or private equity where people will just try to do the same thing and, and uh, maybe not be successful. No, it's a great question, and, and and it's funny. I've asked that question of different of different you know people as as we pick them up and start to cover them. How do you know? How can we tell if you're successful? So there's a there's a Ingersoll Rand again. There's a guy who was from Danaher. A couple of leaders there were CEO included. I asked him that exact question, and he's like, you know, here's a couple of answers. There are companies that put up what he called a movie set. You know, it looks like lean. It looks like you know a functioning system, and obviously they're trying. It's not meant to be. But it's not there. It's not real behind it. I was like, okay, that's fascinating. You know, he named a couple. I was like, okay, that's fascinating. How do I tell what's real? And his answer was actually pretty simple. It comes out in the numbers. And Vicente Rinal, the CEO, would say the same thing. It comes out in the numbers. So that's not a quarterly thing. But over a year or two, you know, is your core growth getting better? Is your pricing improving? You know, is, have you done something to make your products better that you can charge for them better? And it comes out in the numbers. And so one answer to that question is, you know, it's hard to bet on it until you see it. And so, but you you watch those metrics very closely, you see the steadiness. Another answer to your question is what's the input? You know, so, you know, what are the daily management processes that you're doing? What are the daily cultural attributes of your company that are that are there, right? And, and to be fair, they don't all have to be the same. I mean, Transdime is a very different company from Roper, for example. Not everybody's trying to replicate the immense success that Danner has had in, in optimizing so many different processes. But the inputs you know, have to be more than just the CEO saying, I want to do all this. And I, you know, have a great, you know, team on M&A. It has to be, you know, what do you, you know, what are you doing in each of these sub subdivisions, each of the, your, your sub segments or reporting segments, et cetera, that helps margins go up and growth rates accelerate and cash flow go up. And do you think, I'm just kind of trying to, trying to think of how, how to phrase this, but I'm sure there have been examples where people either have this, you know, this kind of playbook or they try to do lean or they try to do something else that's sort of where you're like, okay, this is a great idea. I, I know if they do it right, it's going to work. But at some point, the process gets, you know, aborted for whatever reason. And when that happens, I'm, I'm curious, is that, do you think there's more issues of either culture or internal resistance, or is there like macro things, the balance sheet gets, you know, the markets fall apart. Where have you seen examples without maybe naming names, but where have you seen examples of where people were trying to do the right thing and it still sort of didn't come together and why, you know, maybe this is too complex of a question, but I'm trying to figure no, out no, I, I, um, I where this could go wrong because otherwise it seems so easy. I'm like, oh, I just got to find the right playbook and somebody who does lean. <laughs> <laughs> easy. Yeah. I mean, again, some of these things take years to inculcate. I have a perfect example. Illinois Toolworks is a great company that's doing very, very, very well right now. I covered them for a number of years and Illinois Toolworks had a... a decentralized system. They had a different system. It wasn't quite lean continuing improvement. It was called 80-20. It, you know, focus on the 20% that drives 80% of the value kind of a thing, you know, Pareto principle, that sort of thing, rigorously applied just all the time, all over the place. 
in roughly 2006, seven, they had, I think, 550 business units. And the idea was, you know, every business unit can do a deal every year or every four years or whatever, and we'll compound in, in a way, right? And apply 80, 20, and we'll strip out the things that don't matter and drive the right act. All the right things. And I did an analysis like, all right, here are the industries they're in. They're in food manufacturing. Are there enough companies to acquire? Yes. Are they're in auto parts. Are they, you know, all these different things. And they didn't actually acquire very much. And it's funny, I actually did a note that I didn't publish that was one of my best notes ever, and I didn't publish it because I went back and was like, all right, let's show how they had 50 divisions, they did 20 deals, they had 100 divisions, they had 50 deals, you know, and let's just show how each of those little divisions can do a deal every year and how that can drive compounding growth. I did analysis and it looked like, well, gosh, actually it looks like they do a couple big deals here and there, and that's what really drove the growth. And it wasn't this at all. And that, that I think was correct. And I just thought about it for too long and I never published it. So their strategy didn't work. And so, you know, one of these change moments, you know, and it was a good company throughout, I don't mean to apply it, but the acquisition wasn't clicking in the way. And so one thing they did is they decided to apply 80-20, their system to the whole company. So they said, all right, 500, 800 business units is too many. Let's consolidate. That was antithetical to the culture at that time. The culture was you want to be running your own little pod, your own little business within this. And so there's some massive cultural changes to your questions at the beginning, like, you know, what does the CEO do? Does it matter? Well, you're leading in some ways a deepening of the culture, but in some ways a transformation of the culture where a bunch of people who thought they were in the catbird seat of running their own segment are now not, you know, because you're consolidating. And what they did was drive margins up. Gosh, I, I don't follow it now, but I mean, a thousand basis points or something. I mean, you know, they, you know, huge improvements in margin because they shifted the strategy. So that kind of ties into your other questions. You know, what does a management team do? You commit to it and you got a process. Sometimes there's a moment where your strategy isn't working or there's a better strategy for you to create more value when they found that and they, and they did it very successfully. I would say though, yeah, it sounds easy, but so many companies don't do it. That's why the compounders work. And that's why, you know, you or I would probably fail at it unless you really, really like post-its on the wall and manage measuring progress, you know? Curious. So we've talked about the CEO, and at some point in the book, you guys make the make the case that the CFO role has been very very important to some of these. Sometimes on the defensive, like turning around Honeywell or and complimenting what the the CEO was good at. Sometimes very good on the trying to figure out. I think it was Danaher or or one of those or maybe Roper where the CFO basically said, "Look, I've done hundreds of acquisitions. I I know what I'm looking for. There's always something that goes wrong. Where there's just immense value in that person." Being very, and is that would you say that's something something new? Is that very specific to acquisitive companies? And what are you looking for in a in a CFO? No, it's a great question. One of the things we've talked about is the pay gap between CEOs and CFOs. And sometimes we think a, a high quality CFO can be you know underpriced in some ways, right? So Dave Anderson at Honeywell was you know was leading the transformation. Dave Cody, the CEO, and he was Dave Anderson was the CFO. And there's a few things. I mean, Dave Cody talks about in his book how he was trying hard to deliver short-term results that Wall Street would understand and appreciate and see the results while also planning long-term strategy. And, you know, you can you can focus on the five-year, we're going to get there all you want, but you might not be there in five years if you're, you know, if you're not showing progress, right? And so the CFO rule is fascinating because... You know, you're, you're communicating with Wall Street. You're trying to show people what you're doing. You're trying to build confidence and, and room and headroom. Some success builds you enough headroom for someone else for, for the execution of these strategies, which may take time. So Dave Cody was great at that. I mean, he would meet regularly with, you know, with Scott Davis and, and, and me, even though I didn't follow the stock. I was on the machinery side. You know, take the pulse of the market. You know, what, you know, what are the end markets doing? Let's just have an open flow of dialogue so that we can see what they're doing. You know, and so the CFO often takes a little bit of a more investor facing role and helps immensely in some of these, you know, building little blocks and also in giving the market the confidence. Let's say you are a, a leader of a company that needs to make a pivot, you know, so you need to tell people why you need to explain it. You need to show how and, and, and why it's important and what you're doing uh, as opposed to just making the pivot, if you see what I mean. So, no, we found that the CFO role can be, can be dramatically important. Are there certain, I don't know how to put this, traits or backgrounds that you're looking for do you think there's because people can end up in that seat i guess from from different directions right whether it's uh, internally or outside from an accounting firm sometimes even from from outside of accounting is there is there anything any specific experience that you're looking for or is it kind of company by company 
I think the, the question is the answer. It's varied, right? It depends on what you need. You know, if you're a company that, you know, has, has levered up to grow and needs a delever, let's tell that story in an effective way and let's manage the balance sheet in an effective way. You know, so if you're a company that's growing aggressive. So I, I do think that that's a role that can rise or fall in importance, you know, as, you know, as, you know, circumstances or companies change and maybe the background it can be different importance too. Anyway, I mean, I, it's a good question. I'm not sure there's a clean answer to it. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned, right, obviously a CFO sort of frequently does the heads up investor relations in, in that way. And I think what was at least from the GE example, so striking was when the company, and maybe that's from a different era, but sort of trying to get the covering analyst fired or trying to get them to retract their report or make changes, right? Sort of this power dynamic between you're you're trying to have access and trying to manage the relationship and you sort of have to figure out what what can I say that's sort of walks the balance between what's what I can defend and what's accurate and maybe if I see a problem they're not going to like that how does that is that very different now from you know two decades ago and and how do you think about that walking that line that's a great question it's it's a tricky one I, I think GE had a very confrontational or arrogant or you know image focused culture in some ways it's a public you know public brand GE brings good things to life and so I think some of that may or may not have seeped into interactions with folks. Gosh, I think companies, so let's picture an earnings flow as, you know, as a you know, set of earnings that get discounted at a certain rate. If you all of a sudden start throwing, so companies try to manage the message, you know, hopefully appropriately to say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're trying to do. Here's why you can count on this. And, you know, here's why it's a repeatable thing that deserves the low discount rate and it's going to grow at X. So if you're an analyst and your job is to not just say, okay, that looks good, you know, you know, but to actually create some value, you know, there can be a, a you know, a desire to to say something interesting, intriguing, provoking, different, right? To push them. And when that's done best, it's, you know, you're right. But it, you know, I've spoke of arrogance before. I mean, you know, if you're if you're covering Caterpillar and you've toured seven factories, but that's not that many, do you really say the production system is totally hosed? You know, is, is that the right would that have been the right call for me? I don't know if I was an experienced enough analyst to say that, even though I could see the junk piling up and that didn't seem right. So anyway, the point is managing the message relates to the value of the, the cash flows that you're going to generate, right? And so the job of an analyst, I think, does involve questioning that. But, you know, if you're going to say something that's radically different from message, you want to be well-founded. You know, you can't always be right, but you want to be well-founded. So no, I think it is a little bit different. I think companies, when I've had, I've had sales on companies, I've had sales on Caterpillar shares, you know, on Deer shares, on Cummins and Packard, and mostly companies are not upset if you have a different opinion. But if you say, hey, here's their strategy and the strategy is not that, then they're gonna be really cheesed off, right? Because it's, you know, inaccurate and unhelpful. So anyway, I think our job is to be provocative in the right ways, you know, and, and hopefully we do that right. And you mentioned something that was sort of interesting, right? There's sometimes this argument that, well, if you're a public company, you have to, I think the example that you mentioned is like, it's it's great to have a five-year goal, but you still have to sort of manage the short term to, to ensure that you're there. And so people will argue, well, the downside of the public market is you have to manage to the quarterly earnings. And, and on the other hand, you're being held accountable by the market, right? I'm curious, maybe GE was the most egregious example of sort of constantly going into the cookie jar to manage earnings and smooth that out. Is that sort of something that's, you know, an issue of the of the past or how do you think about smooth earnings versus volatile earnings and does the is that just unpack that one for me because it seems in your space with volatile markets and you know caterpillars as an example like to... well smooth earnings are worth more than volatile earnings right and i'll give you a, a healthy example of that first and then an unhealthy one uh, the cfo of danaher gave us this little lesson like how do you think about volatile businesses well let's say you buy something and revenues fall 20 percent, and you apply all these fixes and you're you know you're applying maybe fixes for a down cycle that'd be different for a steady business and eventually you you know you get it back up and revenues bounce back because they're cyclical and then now they're at 110 percent of where they were the effort and the lost time in compounding that you've lost during those two years of down cycle versus if it had just grown five percent and you you improve everything and then you've created cash flow and you can compound it you've lost you've lost time and you've lost the energy if you see what i mean and so Fundamentally, not not manipulation or management or anything, the value of that steady earning stream in a Danaher system was vastly more than a volatile. So, you know, I think Warren Buffett has said, I'd rather have a volatile, I don't want to misquote him, but a volatile 25% return than a steady 10. I think Danaher might say, well, we can do a lot with a steady 10. You know, we can we can sort of, you know, we can sort of crank that through and compound it, whereas a volatile 20 or a volatile 15 or whatever the breakpoint would be, would be less valuable. Now, 
That being said, I suppose if you're a management team, knowing quite well that steady earnings are more, you know, more valuable than volatile earnings, there might be a temptation. I don't think our companies, you know, manipulate earnings, but you know, there might be a temptation to cut R and D, you know, to, to you know, to show the earnings stream is more stable, right? Sometimes that might be the right thing. Maybe your business is falling and it's secularly contracting, so you do want to disinvest in that. So that becomes a very complex question whether minor course corrections are a good thing because they're helping you keep or you know keep closer to whatever the trend line is as opposed to outguessing it versus they're actually managing earnings in a, in a, in a bad way, you know, to make poorly numbers. I think a lot of our executives would say it is frustrating. I mean, you know, they, they have, you know, they have a lot of workflows going on and, you know, to have to be judged on whether something goes right or wrong in a quarter is a, is a difficult thing, but in some ways there can be some healthiness to it. You know, you know, if you have, quick course corrections, you know, that volatility diminishes naturally as opposed to growing naturally. It's it's interesting. I was just thinking of the, because you mentioned R&D and also the the value of sort of smooth earnings versus volatility. And, and I'm, I'm curious, there are these examples of companies like maybe Boeing or some GE with the engines where you have to sort of make investments in uh, multi-decade kind of programs and you don't know how it's going to play out. And even the executives, right, it's, it's very hard to figure it out. And now you're sitting on the outside as an investor and analyst and you have to figure out this company is going to invest all this cash. And 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 how do you how do you assess that with with limited? What, what's your has that has your has your way of coming at that changed at all from when you started it in, in the business? Because it seems like such a complex it is complex. I think anybody who's done it for a long time has to feel a sense of humbling because you're probably wrong and you're wrong on important big changes, right? And sometimes the world changes abruptly and you're wrong because you couldn't have forecasted or maybe you just missed something or whatever. I think one thing the market has done is, it, you know, to your earlier question, it has valued the steady earning streams higher, you know, more predictable earning streams more and more highly versus the less predictable ones. In some ways, you know, the tech market has maybe taken a beating recently. But low intensity, high growth, low capital intensity, high growth is a wonderful thing, you know, a wonderful thing. So if you look at the stocks on the cyclical end of industrials, like, you know, the ones I follow, the more machinery based ones, the ones where your cycles really rise and fall, they have steadily, and in, in, in my view, currently too abruptly become valued at more and more of a bigger discount than the, the steady compounders, let's say. Partly that's a reflection of all the value the compounders have created. But one answer to your question is you, 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 over time you realize, boy, this is hard to figure out. And so if it is hard to figure out, that's risk, you know, and so it, it gets valued as less. I'm not sure there's a way to better forecast because the world is a complex system and, you know, it can be somewhat arrogant to say, I've actually got this figured out this time. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Again, something I liked about the book where there's so many examples of one of them was, I think, United Technologies, I'm sorry, United Rentals. You're saying, oh, we follow all these trucker forums and we're trying to figure out um, how people deliver the equipment, all these problems. And it reminded me of walking the factory floor and all of these sort of practices that maybe you pick up along the way, which to me, mentally, I follow them under maybe field research, or like trying to get at it from not just from the financials, but trying to get at the operations of the company and like what what people in that industry are saying. I'm, I'm curious what sort of tricks of the trade you've, you've picked up or what, what do you think is worthy of paying attention to? Boy, I mean, it's a, a perfectly good question. It's going to have a gazillion answers depending on which company you're following or which subsegment. But I mean, you know, again, to your earlier question, we, we look at how many mining trucks are made every year. We think about how much mining capex is going up. We try to match those two things up. We look at farms. We look at, you know, we look at all these things. We, you know, you do look at trucker boards and, you know, part of the URI thing is, you know, if you're delivering equipment through Manhattan, you're going to have a stressful day, right? And so if you can actually do that with some sort of efficiency or some sort of, you know, help technological or just knowing the roots or whatever, that can be a big stress releaser and a big value enhancer. I, I don't know. I mean, that is, I guess, part of the secret sauce is, you know, you try to develop those for whatever matters in a company. And that, that's hard to define too sometimes. The bigger thing, and I, I suppose the bigger message you've been drilling on in the book is it can be hard to outguess all those things, but it can be somewhat easier than you think to know if a management team is well-structured. Again, if you flow bad news up, if, you, if you're well-structured to surface, identify, and fix problems quickly or or not, if you see what I mean, because the problems are going to be hard to predict. Yeah. So would you say far, part of it is, uh, part of your job comes down to, comes back to sort of having the pattern recognition of leadership strategy, you know, um, culture, is that in alignment? And then seeing whether, as you walk the factory floor, whether they actually walk the walk, right? Whether what they present to you is actually what's what's happening and whether if a divergence opens up, is the market going to be aware of that? 
100%. Early in my career, and again, it takes experience to do it, but I would have had much too little time on the alignment of those things, the alignment of strategy, incentive, and execution, partly because it doesn't exactly help you forecast the next quarter, right? The next quarter might be forecast by, you know, did they, did they have a huge order or whatever, right? Is backlog way high, you know? But sustained value creation is, is much more aligned to those ideas than it is yeah, end markets help. It helps a lot to be in a growing end market, so don't get me wrong. But but I think the balance of our research is focused a lot more on management, execution, and incentives than it had been. Yeah, so I, I already, I mean, I told you this, but I've recommended the book to my friends. I'm curious, is there a second version in, in the works? How do you think about all the other companies that we, uh, we'd love to, to have covered? You know, it's funny. I think I've mentioned three or four that I'd love to write a chapter on. You know, I think John Deere is, is an amazing story of, you know, an old school manufacturer that's pivoted to the technology age in a, in a really effective way, in a way that ties strategy, innovation, technological networking. You know, they, they're in Silicon Valley. They're, you know, they're, they're doing all sorts of things. Ingersoll Rand is another one that's, you know, I think, you know, you ask how do you identify a compounder? And, you know, the, you know, we get to meet a lot of management teams. It's a lot of fun. I sat down with their management team for, you know, an hour and asked them a few basic questions like we've talked about. And I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. You know, this, this is absolutely amazing. That is a compounder in the making. It's, you know, what I walked away with a couple of years ago. So we'd love to. It's a lot of work writing a book, as it turns out. So I don't know if we'll get to it in the middle of the day job or not, but it's been fun. And we, we are certainly... Uh, we love this job and you know, we're privileged to be able to talk to uh, you know all the leaders that, that we we have a chance to interact with and be fun to tell more stories absolutely well i really enjoyed this i i want to thank you for for joining me i i look forward to helping you get the the word out and get more people to to read the book as well as dig into some of the names that that you've mentioned i'm sure there's there's a lot of exciting things to discover and or to talk to you about if people on the institutional side but but thank you so much rob this was uh, this was a lot of fun i learned a lot well thanks to you as well i mean you obviously you had great questions you you, you know we appreciate the interest and I enjoyed the conversation as well. So thank, thank you. you.